Uh, thank y'all for singing with us. You have a Bible. We're in Acts 19. We'll begin in verse number 17. Not burying the lead at all with the title tonight. Um, uh, there's a band called Smashing Pumpkins. I don't think they're still around or they're still in, still on tour. But um, it's ha- um, Halloween or fall themed, right? Smashing Pumpkins, Smashing Idols. Um, we'll see a few idols smashed tonight, um, uh, things to deal with idols. Um, but that's going to be our conversation tonight about idols, about idolatry, about religion. Um, we kind of began this conversation last week talking about um, the spiritual reality that uh, we live in, maybe that we are not aware of or um, that we don't pay attention to or we downplay, um, but that is very much there. And, and I hope what happened last time was that our eyes were open at least that we gain some clarity about how we are to perceive and interact with our world. Um, All that, of course, was inspired by Paul's encounter at Ephesus. Paul spends um, Acts 19 through Acts 20 in the city of Ephesus. He spends three years there, longer than any other tenure um, of ministry. Um, He was at Corinth 18 months. Most of these cities he spent just a few months in, but he was at Ephesus for over three years, which is a pretty big deal. Um, And of course, we talked Sunday in our Revelation study that Ephesus is addressed more than any other book, any other city uh, in the Bible. Um, And we'll see even more of that tonight. Um, but Paul um, came to Ephesus uh, and encountered uh, many who were possessed by evil spirits. Now, we don't know um, if they all looked as we assume demon possession looked like. You know, we have an idea in our head, like some of those that Jesus dealt with, like the man that was chained to the tombs, like the one that was throwing himself in fire. We don't know if all these that were possessed by evil spirits were, were displaying those sorts of behaviors. We just know that they were uh, vexed by or plagued by, overwhelmed by, overcome by evil spirits. And and nonetheless, Paul, through the Lord and and God, through Paul, was able to free these people from evil spirits and bring them to the knowledge of Christ. And we saw how that was contrasted with or juxtaposed next to the sons of Sceva. The sons of Sceva were these Jewish uh, religious leaders in Ephesus who uh, made a profit off, supposing they had the power to do such sort of thing. Uh, But they did not, and they were humiliated uh, in their attempts to cast evil spirits out of people. Uh, we read that last week where the demons say to the sons of Sceva, I've heard of Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but I have no idea who you are. And they left those men for dead, um, naked and ashamed. Uh, they were le- humiliated. But uh, we spent much of our time last week cross-referencing Acts 19 with the book of Ephesians, which I didn't mention last week, but clearly the references that Paul makes in the letter to the Ephesians no doubt was influenced by his encounter at Ephesus and what he knew was on their minds and was so uh, was such a part of their formation as a church. Uh, Paul's experience in Ephesus, no doubt, influenced his references in his later epistle. Uh, the people of Ephesus saw clearly how faith in Jesus, uh, how faith in Jesus transformed lives. Uh, those who trusted in Jesus were, were uh, everybody that observed the, the people's salvation, people that didn't even believe in Christ, people that didn't come to Christ, people that observed the church growing there um, could not deny that there was some sort of powerful transformation taking place from those that were freed from these evil spirits and those that were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, We talked last week about that contrast between the darkness and the light and how clearly here at Ephesus we see that transition from one to the other. The power of Jesus liberated and transformed 
transformed those that were bound by evil spirits. Uh, It was impossible to deny that that was going on. This power was appealing and alluring as it was inviting people to want to know more about it. Uh, If you read the book of Ephesians, Paul has a few specific words he uses when describing the Ephesians before they came to Christ and after they come to Christ. Um, More than any other book of the New Testament, Paul uses these compare and contrast words that talk about, hey, this is what you were like before Jesus, and this is what you've been like since you came to Jesus. And now that you kind of know the backstory to the letter to the Ephesians, now that you know the condition of Ephesus before Christianity came, it's even more, uh, I think it's clarifying, and it kind of makes sense as to why Paul shows this stark contrast these clear transitions and transformations because this was a city that was deeply entrenched in the pagan religions of its time and of its day and the power of Christ totally changed things Uh, and, and it showed how one spiritual reality was replaced by another darkness was swallowed up by light now next time you read Ephesians um or you just skim it one night, maybe tonight. Next time you read or you're studying your Bible, just open up Ephesians and maybe get one highlighter and another highlighter and underline or highlight the contrasting words that you see that Paul uses when he's talking about the transformation that he witnessed at Ephesus, that he witnessed in the Ephesian church, and that they should be aware of, and, and they were aware of it. Um, just a few I'll put up here on the screen for you. Paul talks about how they were dead in their sins, but made alive in Christ. They were blind in their sin, but they were enlightened by the Holy Spirit. They were separated from God. They were brought near by Jesus. There was hostility, but then there was peace. They were captive to the enemy, but then they were liberated by Jesus. That's just the first three chapters. Go through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and you'll see dead, alive, blind, enlightened, separated, near, hostile, peace, captive, and liberty. But that's not all. Paul talks about how they were corrupt in their former ways, but made holy in the new way. There was an old man, and there was a new man. They were in darkness, but then they came to light. They were asleep, but now they are awake. They were foolish, but now they're wise. They were drunk. But now they're sober and vigilant and aware of what God is doing. Their spirits were bogged down by sin, but now they are alive and revived in Christ. Again, I don't think that there's a book of the Bible with that much theology packed in so short of a book or so short of a letter. Again, read Ephesians and you'll see this contrast from one to the other, from old to new, from dark to light. Now, as Paul taught these things, it was clear to the Ephesians how starkly different things were from before now that they were in Christ. And you'll see that phrase also in Ephesians. Paul talks about them being in Christ, out of sin, into Jesus. They didn't just have faith in Christ. They were placed in Christ. They were in heavenly places in him. Uh, There is no doubt why so many reacted so boldly and passionate about their newfound faith and for their newfound faith and their newfound devotion in Acts 19. As many of them believed and experienced this transformation, um, again, it should not surprise us how public and how bold they were about this transformation. And that's where I want to begin our time tonight. We read this last week, but didn't cover it. 
Acts 19, verse 17 through 20, this is the aftermath of this revival that took place through the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Speaking of all the things they had seen, this became known both to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And this is the response of those many, many, many thousands who believed. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Verse 19. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them all, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, these people were part of occult communities, many trinkets and instruments that went along with their magic, amulets and spell books. They brought them and they burned them because there was this clear divide between what was and what is. And they no longer needed those, those remnants of their pagan religions that they once clung to because now they had something genuine, something real that those things could not bring them. Now, I want us to understand, now, when we hear spell books, we hear magic, we hear things like this, you know, we think of things that we only have seen in fiction. Um, there's hardly a category for us in our world when when we talk about these things because they're not, it's not really real to us. It's something we see sensationalized, but again, it's not something that we see every other day, uh, you know, in the real world. But in those days, of course, where much of our fiction takes its cues from, these things that we take silly and lightheartedly, these things were serious and sacred to the pagans. Uh, these things were their religion. These were their, their only hope uh, that they clung to to connect with the gods or with God. The ancient religions were all about doing all sorts of things to get the attention of the gods. And that was a part of this magic, this occult that these Ephesians were, were joined to. Remember back to Elijah on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal were cutting themselves and doing all sorts of chants, incantations to get Baal's attention, but they could not get his attention. And they were dancing and they were trying their best to get his attention, but they just couldn't do it. Um, now, here's why it's pretty safe to assume that all of those old religions and really every religion, even the religions that don't look like this of the ancient pagan world. Um, the thing that we need to understand about these religions, all religions, religion is not some well-meaning attempt to find God, but it's a misguided deception from Satan to trap humanity. See, these people realized what they were once, that they were bound by. These people didn't think, oh, that religion that we had, it was just something that was harmless. It was something that was a placeholder. It was something that we were meaning well in, but try to find God, but it didn't work, but now we've found something else. These people knew that what they had once been a part of was not just some well-meaning attempt that just wasn't as good as Christianity. They realized it was a misguided deception from the enemy meant to trap them and keep them from ever getting to God because those religions didn't work yet there were many people that were still are spellbound by them and I think that word spellbound is appropriate because religion is a cloak over the heart of its adherents it's evil not just neutral religion is not just a neutral thing it is an evil dark thing 
Now, what do I mean by religion? Now, here we see religion in the fashion that we often uh, think about it. You know, people worshiping other gods and doing all sorts of chants and spells and doing all sorts of vain rituals. But I want you to know that religion in our world today is just as evil, but it might not look like this anymore. It does look like this in some places, but not in most places. Religion in our world today doesn't look like this, but that doesn't mean it's not the same. It's of the same origin. See, religion, you see, blends in with what is normal or seems normal in the world. Religion blends into its surroundings. In the ancient world, this was normal. In our world, religion looks different than it did back then, but it's still the same cloak. It's still the same deception. And the thing about religion in today's world, especially in our world, in America, let's make it even more focused, in the southeast of America, religion can look eerily similar to Christianity. Sing the same songs, wear the same clothes, go to the same places on the same day, same hour, do the same things. Religion looks really similar to Christianity in our world, except The difference is one clearly brings people to God and one certainly does not bring people to God. You you see, religion is about appearance. It's about rituals. It's about repetition. But it lacks substance and it lacks possession. You see, what made religion, what made the religion of the Ephesians evil, now hear me, What made it evil wasn't the spells or the chants or the books or the amulets. It was the powerful force that kept them deceived and enslaved, that showed itself in this magic, in these spell books, in these outward things. But the outward appearance, when you rip it off, what was at the core of that religion is still at the core of religion. It's this deception, it's this bondage that keeps people from ever getting to God, but it makes them feel like they're getting close but they never get there. I bring this up because there are people in Christian churches that are as enslaved and as spellbound by religion as these Ephesian people were before they met Jesus. The sad truth about our world is people are singing about Jesus, yet they still don't know him. These people didn't know who Jesus was, were not singing about Jesus, clearly were enslaved to sin and to death. And yet when they got out of that, they said, there's no more of that. We are burning every idol, burning every book. We're breaking every remnant of the religion of the old because we don't need it anymore. We don't want it anymore. We found Jesus. And we're going to make it known far and wide. The distinction between religion and Christianity, the distinction between someone who's religious and someone who's saved is the same distinction as it was back then. I mean, just bring this list back up. You see, there are people, and I'm not, not, I'm not trying to beat up on people that are in church because I'm in church, and this is, I'm susceptible to this as anybody. The, different, the thing that makes us distinct in Christ is that we are alive and enlightened and near to God, at peace with God, and liberated from sin. You see, religion doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be in that category. There are plenty of people that are religious, that are, they're dead, and they're blind, and they're separated, and there's hostility, and they're captive to sin still 
Isn't it true? There are people that are, that, that are in church and that are followers of Christ that are still corrupt, that are still going the old way, that are in darkness, that they're asleep and they're foolish and they're drunk. Right? That just because we're in the building and doing the rituals and the motions and repetitions doesn't mean we're holy and new and have light and are awake and are wise and are sober. You see, religion makes sure we never get those things. Religion keeps us from those things. We can easily be in church and go through Christian motions and still be on the left side of the list. And the thing about religion is religion causes enough noise and religion tunes into our emotions so that our head spins so fast that we can't really tell that we aren't getting closer to God. We just think maybe next week, maybe next time, maybe the next experience will get there. The people of Ephesus, however, made a clear, distinct transition from lost to found, dead to alive, religion to relationship, dark to light. So Paul was as convinced as ever, as he saw them walk away from religion and walk into Christ, and the word began to grow mightily. When Paul witnessed this, and we're going to get back to the people of Ephesus in a minute, but I want to move on here for a minute. When Paul witnesses this, he is convinced the gospel's unstoppable. I mean, he already knew that, but at this point, he saw what happened here. He says, man, if this can change this city, then anything can happen. God can do anything. And in verse number 21, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he passed through Macedonia and Acacia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also go to Rome. So here's Paul saying, if God can change the wicked pagan city of Ephesus, I'm setting my sights on Rome because there is nothing stopping the gospel from tearing down these walls and smashing every idol in this world. So that word must, remember our word from Acts that we've seen a lot, that word day, the Greek word day, that means this is necessary. Remember Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem. I must die on the cross. Paul or Peter says, I must obey God, not man. Paul here says, I must go to Rome because I've seen what the gospel can do and I'm not going to stop until it changes the world because I know that it can. Now, in, these, uh, in verse 22, it says, he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered with him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Now, Asia, Asia Minor, we talked about this Sunday. Turkey is basically what that's referring to. Again, Ephesus is in the nation of Turkey, in the nation of Asia Minor. While Paul is on leave here, or he's not really on leave, but he's kind of taking a sabbatical. While he is kind of staying there in Ephesus, he is writing the letter to the, to the Corinthians. He writes 1 Corinthians. So if you want to know what's going on in this little Paul's period, um, he writes the book of 1 Corinthians, and not long after that, he writes 2 Corinthians. But the action picks back up in verse 23. And remember what just happened in verse 17, 18, 19. They just burned their magic books. They just smashed their idols. They just made a clear renouncement of religion, and they put their faith in Jesus. About that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Now, maybe your Bible says that way, and it might not be capitalized, but if New King James and beyond capitalizes that word way, because that was the way, that was the word for Christianity in the ancient world. In the book of Acts, you see this word, you see that phrase, that way or the way. That's referring to 
the way. Jesus said, I am the way. They called the movement the way in the early days. It wasn't called Christianity until really a long time after uh, when the church got organized. But when you see that phrase, the way or that way in the book of Acts, it's referring to Christianity. And again, calling back to Jesus's word in John chapter 14. So the, when, about the time there arose a commotion about the way, verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana or Artemis, the Greek and Roman god, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So here comes a silversmith who is concerned with what he is witnessing in his city. What follows in Ephesus is the display of the world's ire towards Christianity specifically rooted back in what Luke tells us in verse number 19 as they begin to renounce their religion. They burned those old religious things. They did not need them nor want them anymore. They, but those religious things were very valuable in the world's eyes. They were very valuable to the world. And they, the world got along with those religious things. The world rubbed elbows with those religious things. The world in religion often walks side by side. Here we see it on display. We'll read more in a minute. But you see, religion, religion can be very profitable, can be very lucrative. Religion will always get the world's blessing. Remember, what did Luke tell us? That little footnote in verse 19. The value of those things they burned and those things they smashed was 50,000 pieces of silver. So Luke wants us to know that when they started smashing things and burning things, there were some people in the city that they started, they were sick on their stomach because that was profit to them. That was value to them. And all of a sudden we see the world collude against the Christian movement here in Ephesus. Sometimes because the world shares the values, but mostly the world likes when religion stays in its place. Religion does not call the shots in the ancient world. Religion toes the line. And that's what happened here in the, ancient, in, in the book of Acts and in the nations uh, of, of Rome and Greece. The religion kind of followed the way the world wanted it to go. But we've seen so far in Acts, Christianity was not a follower. It was a trailblazer. It was a world changer. Back in Acts 17, what it was the word, these people that have turned our world upside down are here as well. You see, religion, uh, the world loves religion as long as religion means status quo. But Christianity rejects the status quo. Christianity is disruptive, and that's why the world rejects it. Always as always will. The religious system of the ancient world, not unlike the system of our world, was doing business with the world. In many ways, it was shaking hands with it. In many ways, it was fueling the business of the world. Here we have Demetrius, who was a silversmith. Uh, again, he made idols to Diana or to Artemis, and he gets the attention of many people in verse 25. He called them together with the workers of the similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all of, all of Asia, this Paul was persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger, that's a big statement that he's saying out loud there, but he was a pagan, he didn't care. 
This trade of ours is in danger of falling into disrepute. But also the temple of the great goddess of Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worships. Now this might be Greek to you, literally it was Greek to them, it might be Greek to you. But here's what this man is saying. Christianity is bad for business and we cannot let it spread. It's going to shut our economy down. It's going to change the way the world works, functions. We cannot let this movement get any bigger because it's going to break our economy if it grows anymore. Remember that story we looked at last week when Jesus and the demon-possessed man at Gadara met? And Jesus cast those demons out of that man, those legion of demons. And remember, he put them into the pigs. They went off the cliff into the water. Now, Gadara was a Gentile territory across the Sea of Galilee over the Jordan River, which is why there were pigs there, which is why the people were herding pigs and, and, and raising pigs, if Jews would do that. Uh, but maybe you've never paid much attention to how that story ends. Mark tells us, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city, in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, sometimes when you just pull a verse out of the Bible like that, you read that and think, why were they afraid? They paid no attention to the demon-possessed man being healed. Their attention was taken by something else. And those who had seen it, Describe to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. I mean, hey, it's nice that this man's in his right mind again, but we don't really care about him. But the pigs, that's our profit. That's our business. And Jesus just sent him off the cliff. And they all going to get together in a little huddle and saying, you know, it's kind of cool that we have this miracle worker in town, but... He's really bad for business. So what should we do? And one of them spoke up. They began to beg Jesus to depart. Jesus, will you please leave? You broke our economy for the time being. We don't really like you. You healed this man. I guess that's kind of cool, but you need to leave. You are bad for our business. And you know what? He got in the boat and he left. He was bad for business. They told him that they had no place for him in their company and he left. Now, I gotta bring this to us. If you find yourself shying away from embracing Jesus in any aspect of your life, it's possible that you fear that he could cost you something. Now, we might not think it like that, but that could be what's at work underneath. It's true for all of us. There are certain people at work, at school that we hang out with that we downplay our faith around them, don't we? We file our faith away. We put it in the background because Jesus might ruin the mood. Maybe we've just never allowed Jesus to be in control of a certain area of our life. It's not that we can't do that for God's glory. It's that just we never have done it for God's glory. We've never introduced God into that part of our life. Maybe we think he's bad for business, as in we don't allow our Christian virtues to go with us there because we just don't think it would really fit in. 
for whatever reason, it reveals how we are far more religious than we want to admit. We reserve Jesus for certain places and certain occasions, but, and we don't welcome him everywhere. Now, this is where I might be a little extreme for some, but this is where I think the Bible wants us to go with this. Now, we may do this subconsciously. I don't think that we do this intentionally or maliciously, but we still do it, and that's the issue. That's the concern. We have to ask ourselves, why do we not involve Jesus into every area of our life? Why is it that we kind of check him at the door in some situations, in some conversations? Why don't we involve Jesus in every area and aspect of our life? Because ultimately, we are still more sensitive to and invested in this world. That's why. And you may say, well, Justin, you're just trying to make a point about, you're trying to make me feel uncomfortable about things that I, I, I wasn't uncomfortable about already. Hey, that might be me. That might be me doing it. It might be God doing it. But there are plenty of examples of us being like Demetrius where we see what's going on. We can't deny what's going on. But we also know that Jesus might make things a little bit too uncomfortable for us. So why don't we just leave him across the aisle? And he'll be there whenever we're in the mood. Now, we are still more interested in the world's blessing, the world's favor, the world's profit than we are what God has in store for us. We don't do this overtly which is more concerning the fact that we do this subtly and it doesn't phase us. And, and this is why I bring this up. Because we underestimate just how much pressure we are from this world. Just how much pressure we are under from this world. Bringing this back to last week's conversation. Do not underestimate just how much pressure you are under from this world and from its forces. You see, we as Christians believe there is a Holy Spirit who guides us and convicts us, but don't you think there is an unholy spirit who is equally trying to guide us and cloud our convictions? If you don't think that is so, please be aware it is absolutely so. It's why the armor is so important. It's why walking in the light is so important. It's why we need to monitor our sinful nature John writes this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets or false voices have gone out into the world. And here's his test, he says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ, or as in every spirit that makes sure that points to Jesus and prioritizes Jesus and welcomes Jesus into every conversation. That's how you know it's from God. Any spirit that says, well, Jesus doesn't really need to be involved with this. Why would you involve Jesus in this, in this aspect of your life, in this area of your life? Why would you let him influence that? You don't need to do that. Go and do what you want to do. That's not that important. Every one of us have heard that voice before, haven't we? And it's not from God. I think we know that. You know why we love to make big deals about little about little religious things that we do. This is going to make us squirm, but it, sometimes it's good to squirm. You know why we love to make big deals about little things that we do for God? It's connected to all this. You know why the Pharisees made a big deal about giving 10 measly percent to God? You know why the Pharisees made a big deal about showing up to the temple once or twice a week? 
You know why the Pharisees made a big deal about doing a little bit of charity? You know why? Because religion loves to boast about the little sacrifice it makes because it is terrified of total surrender. Religion loves to say, look at what I've done. And it's so small compared to what actually is going on. It's so small compared to what God has done because it's afraid of total surrender. Because there's still some idols that religion carries around. So it builds these defense mechanisms. And and I know this cuts, but it's so true. Religion loves to shout about the little things that it does because it fears the out and is outright opposed to the big demands that God actually calls for. Remember that time that that rich guy came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what do I what do I gotta do to get in to your movement? What do I gotta do to get into heaven? Because I hear you talk about eternal life and the kingdom of God. And what's what's a good guy like me gotta do to get into your kingdom? And this guy had a following. This guy had a big entourage. People loved this guy. When when he showed up, the disciples were were thinking, Oh, that's that's so and so. We've heard of him. Jesus, you better be nice to this guy. We could really use him in our movement. Peter, Paul, Peter and John and James were like, Jesus, you better make sure this guy gets the royal treatment. Go easy on him, Jesus, because I know how you can be to people like this. This guy has a following. This guy's walking in. He's on a horse. You know, he rolls in with his, you know, with his entourage, and he gets off, and he says, Jesus, I've heard about you. You can do great things. You know, uh, what do I got to do to make sure that I've got eternal life? Because I'm a rich guy, but I'm not, you know, I can't live forever. But apparently you can make people live forever, so what do I got to do to get that? And Jesus says, well, you've heard the commandments. Love the Lord your God, love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. Obey these commandments, the do not kill, do not steal, do not commit. You know, you've heard the commandments, and he says, oh, Jesus, I've done all those things. And everybody behind him saying, ooh and on, they're clapping for him, and they're all thinking, wow, look at this guy. Jesus, I've committed, I've always obeyed God. I've never disobeyed God in my life. And the disciples are thinking, wow, this guy's so cool. And of course, Jesus had to do it because he always had to do it. He knew this guy's heart and he had to expose it. He said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus says, listen, buddy, You want eternal life? Your eyes are on this world, and if you want to get your eyes on heaven, you've got to get rid of all the stuff you are idolizing on earth. Sell it, give it away, and then you will have treasure, and then you will see me as most important. And you see how it ends. He became very sad, and I bet he did, because he was extremely rich, and he could not bear give all that up if Jesus would have said listen buddy just give me 10% of what you got and join on in and he would have said well of course I don't even I won't even miss it and Jesus said no 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 I don't want that I want all of it I want everything because you've got so many idols if you don't smash those things right now you'll never have me and I'll never have you whoo 
On one occasion, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, two little mites. And Jesus brought attention to this woman. I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had. They gave 10%, and it was a whole lot more than hers, but she gave 100%. She had no idols, did she? So be careful of big braggers because they're the one that give the least. Be careful of those who talk about what they do because they're the ones that have yet to surrender it all. Often they're the ones like Achan who still have an idol under their tent. So, you know, we all deflect in this way. We all do. But I got to ask you, what idols are you hiding? Could be an idol to self, could be an idol of this world, someone you admire and want the approval of, some template you want to fit into. Is there an area of your life that you are or would be hesitant to surrender to God? The litmus test is when you sing, I surrender all, do you really mean it? Or is there an area carved off that you think is off limits? And you say, well, God doesn't want that, and God doesn't require that, and God has all this for me, so why would he want that? We kind of hide that little area, and we've got a little corner of our life that God doesn't really get his hands on. I have to ask these questions because we won't involve him until we invite him. In some areas, we automatically say no to him. Until we smash those idols and burn those trinkets, he won't have all of us. You see, this is where Ephesians, where, where the people of Ephesus were. This is the people of Ephesus. This is Acts 19. It's so powerful. You see, Christianity threatened to destroy the idol business. That's how committed these people were. That's how sold out they were. They weren't harboring anything. They weren't just partial givers. They were 100% total surrendered to God. And this city had a council meeting about how Christianity threatened to destroy the idol business. Now, let me just say this. I don't think our city or our country is having a meeting right now because Christianity threatens to destroy its idol business. Because in so many ways, we're contributing to it. We're keeping it up. I bring all this into view today because I think the question rings loud, is this still true? Does Christianity still threaten the idol business or does we, do we coexist? Do we not speak against it? Is Christianity bad for business in certain areas of our life? Do we still downplay it and minimize it like some do and some did? Demetrius really stirs up the pagans of Ephesus because his rationale is that Christians threaten their way of life. Whether that was true or not, there were people who feared having their idols taken away. That's how powerful Christianity influence was. Christianity had not just announced their own idols, but they overshadowed the rest of the culture's devotion to the idols. In closing, look at verse 28 through 34. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Paul wanted to go in to the people, but the disciples would not let him 
Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that his, he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. They were just against Christianity. They drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out he was a Jew, all with one voice cried for about two hours. They didn't want his opinion because he was a Jew and he was against idols for a different reason. And here it says, for two hours they sing, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They worship for two hours, singing praises to this idol. This chaos results in the whole city spending two hours gushing forth its praise for idols. They were not gonna let go of their idols. You know why they were so passionate about these idols? Because they saw them being taken away from them. You really find out where someone's devotion is when they're at risk of losing an idol, don't you? The same is true for us. I know we've already done this, but this, this, this might be a little tough for us. What causes you to panic? What causes us to panic? Relationship failures? Things that we didn't expect to go wrong in our personal lives, health, or in our world that we love and that we put our focus on? Financial woes, political swings, one way or the other? These things reveal our idols, don't they? We often are like the masses at Ephesus when somebody's trying to take our idol from us. We say, great is Diana of the Ephesians. You're not taking my idol away. The scene at Ephesus is dispelled by town clerks as they basically say, Rome doesn't like riots. We better settle down. No one's taking your idols away from you. Just go back home. But I think this leaves a lingering set of questions over us concerning where our devotion is, where our passion is, how involved Jesus is in our lives, how much we have given or turned over to him. This would be something the people of Ephesus would struggle with perpetually. We talked Sunday how John was the elder at Ephesus 20, 30 years after this. Paul's dead, Timothy's gone. John comes in, an old, old man, 90-something years old, and he is the presiding elder of Ephesus. Would you believe what they still struggled with? John would write several pastoral letters to guide them after Paul was gone. And he ends his letter with one familiar theme. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, speaking of Jesus, and the evil one does not touch him, as in we're freed from those things. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He says there's a difference between us and them. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He says all this to end this way. He is the true God in eternal life. So little children, keep yourselves from idols. The end. He says, guys, we're still struggling with the same stuff, aren't we? So I gotta ask us, are we truly and wholly surrender sensitive to and surrendered to Jesus or are we still holding on to an idol or two? 
Let there be a threat to take them away one day, our reaction will tell the story. But, better, but the better story is our preemptive and outward expression of total devotion to Jesus. Where he receives priority and preeminence from all that we do and all that we are. John says, you know who you belong to. You know who has saved you. Why are you still clinging to idols? If we are his and he has us, we will not hold on to anything that keeps us from all of him. Makes sense, doesn't it? So who needs to smash an idol or two? Who needs to burn something that may not seem like a big deal, but is keeping our heart from being full of Jesus? And that means it's a tremendously big deal. Do you want all of Jesus? He wants all of you. He has you if you're saved. Let us not hold on to idols. The people of Ephesus, they couldn't let go. But we can, by the power and help of God, we can. And I believe that you will if we just obey him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this, such a truth true uh, message, a relevant message you've given us tonight. Lord, we are a people who have many idols and they don't seem harmful. They're part of our religious routine. We kind of go through the motions and we, we kind of do what you call us to do. And we, we, yeah, we have some stuff that's still there that we still give homage to, but that's okay, isn't it? Lord, you've given us the word tonight that we can't hold on to these idols. These idols will keep us from you. And we see how the Ephesian people, when it came to the point of them losing their idols, they just outright panicked and said, nobody's taking them from us. We're okay with Jesus being over there, but we don't want him right here. Lord, would you help us all to be honest about how much we've surrendered and how much we're still holding back? Lord, this isn't about you wanting to take away stuff from us. This is about you wanting to give more to us. This is about you wanting to fill our hearts up with eternal life. And our hearts will not be full until we let down and smash these idols that we cling to. Lord, help us to put our faith in God. Help us to put our faith in you and not turn towards any other idol and forsake mercy that you have for us. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for these devoted people. Help us to go to our world and expose the idolatry and expose the things that are not for the world but are against it and help us to shine a light into religion and lead people to Jesus because our world needs to hear that good news. God, thank you for that good news. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.